Welcome to today's episode of the Blueprint Podcast, where we throw out the old blueprint so we can learn to become who we were always meant to be. I'm your host, Jason Smith, and if you haven't already, make sure you click the subscribe button and share the podcast with your friends on social media and tag me in it at JaybirdFit. Today, I have a very special guest for you, Masha K, nervous system and breathwork coach. Masha, I can't thank you enough for being here today and sharing your expertise with the audience. I know for many who are listening, they're wondering, what is a nervous system and breathwork coach? What do you do? And how did you get into this type of coaching? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm super excited for this conversation. I've been really looking forward to it. But yeah, that's a great question because you're right. Nervous system breathwork coach gives pretty much nothing away. And most people have no idea what that is. And so a nervous system and breathwork coach, that's kind of what I've been calling myself. But what I really help people do is understand their nervous system and use that understanding and that process of befriending the nervous system to optimize their well-being and move towards their goals with more ease. Because the nervous system is this unconscious force that gets in the way of that, right? And so... I love working with the nervous system, educating people on the nervous system. And I also incorporate breath work as one of the many tools that we could use to regulate the nervous system because the breath is this lever into the autonomic nervous system. And so so that's what I do. And how I got into it is a little bit less linear, to be honest. This is not where my background was. This isn't what I went to college for. I was in finance. I was in actuarial science, so a very different way of life, like the cliche overachiever, straight A's, go into finance, you know, living in New York. So that that was my life. And at around 25, 26, I, I had a little bit of a quarter life crisis, spiritual awakening, quarter life crisis, whatever you want to call it. And at that point, I realized, I'm like, I don't know whose life I'm living. Uh, I'm good at this. I get a lot of praise and validation from this. But this isn't who I am. This isn't fulfilling. Life is feeling empty. I'm getting more and more. I'm achieving more and more. My life looks really impressive on the outside, but I'm feeling worse and worse. And so it was this kind of awakening of who am I? What am I doing? Why do I feel this way if everything looks so great? That got me on my own journey to healing. And it really started more with the physical right? I'm like, okay, I don't know what else to do. This is my job. It is what it is, but maybe I could work on my physical health a little bit get a little bit more energy, feel a little bit better because I was just feeling that all around. And so that's kind of where I started. And when you start looking into your physical health, if you really start diving in, you very quickly come upon weight. There's a mental component to it, right? So you start kind of searching into that and working a little bit on that. And then you come upon the emotional component, right? And so really that kind of quarter life crisis led me to a journey of healing and kind of figuring out who am I and what am I here to do and why am I struggling so much, even though things look so great on the outside. And so as I was going through that journey and realizing the career path I'm in looks good, but it's incredibly unfulfilling and just wrong for me, I started considering like maybe helping others is something I'd be interested in. And, you know, it started to click as years went on and it was, the journey was many years. Um, I realized, you know, I've actually been tutoring children since I was 15. And I've always kind of had a a curiosity in teaching and learning. And so over time, I decided, okay, maybe I'll help people with their well-being. And so I got certified as a holistic health coach, honestly, just for myself as I was in my healing journey and then considered, okay, maybe this is something I could do for others. And through that process, I decided, you know, I'm going to quit my job and start working for myself. But very quickly, I realized the problem isn't necessarily holistic health. 
at least for me and for others. Meaning, yes, there is all these amazing tools and we can work on our well-being in many different ways. But when you start talking to people, they often know that information. They're like, yeah, I know I should be sleeping more. I know I should be eating better. I, they know all the things. The information is out there. They were struggling to implement it. And as I was starting my own business, I was kind of recognizing the same pattern myself of I know the right things to do. I have more information than I ever did that I gathered over the last five years of my journey. Why am I still struggling now that it comes to building my own business or working towards these very new goals, which are big goals, but I've always been kind of working towards big goals. Why is this suddenly so difficult for me? And that's where I just like learned about what the nervous system is. And the more I started learning about that and implementing it in my own life, in my own business, the more I could see that's exactly what all my clients were struggling with. It's like, yes, they needed the tools, but they first needed to get a handle on their nervous system because their stress was so overwhelming. They were so used to living in survival that they were actually struggling to make any changes, right? They were just on autopilot. And so that's kind of when I started slowly shifting my focus on, okay, how do I help people regulate their nervous system using all these tools that I have so that they can implement the changes they want to, so they could create the life that they know they're meant for and yet are struggling to step into. I love that because this, your story is one of resilience. You started on a path of high achieving and going in one direction and then recognizing that there were some circumstances and things that were going on that required you to look at your life and the things that were happening around you and your environment a little bit differently. And it, and it was time for a pivot. And then you took the time to start asking the question, who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? Why am I doing this? And that's really the catalyst to that spiritual awakening that allows you to then start seeking out the information to do the work, to figure things out and to find your place and purpose in this world. And that's something that you've done. So for those who are listening, just recognize that you aren't stuck and that you can pivot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for framing it that way. That, that truly is what it is. It was a major pivot in my life and a pretty terrifying one from that overachiever person that I was to this. It was, it's a pretty, pretty big 180 and Scary. it really did force me. But yeah, it really is. Yeah. And it did force me, you're right, to look at all areas of my life, truly from my health to my relationships, my friendships, my, my partnership to my career, all of it had to be looked at and really questioned. One of the common questions that comes up is how do I know when I'm living in survival mode? What are the signs, the feelings, the emotions, or the lack of emotion? What does that look like? That's a really great question. And, you know, it's a little bit of a nuanced question, definitely something we could explore here, but for me, like, let me, like, maybe I'll start there. For me, it was realizing I was living in autopilot, right? And here's the thing with talking about living in survival. I think people often think the very extreme forms of living in survival, like overwhelming anxiety, panic attacks, right? That is absolutely living in survival. But if I'm being honest, that's not how it looked for me. It was a very low level anxiety that I didn't even recognize as anxiety because I felt in my whole life and I was really high functioning in that anxiety. So I'm like, this is normal, right? Or there was, right, there's, it's a lot of small things that didn't even seem like a problem. So it's very hard to tell when you're living in survival if you've been there your whole life. Now, looking back, I could tell it was a lot of living in autopilot. It was a lot of doing things from a place of fear, doing things from a place of trying to avoid shame, trying to avoid rejections, always running from something, right? And so living in survival could look like a couple of different things for people. 
right? And it really depends on where your nervous system is at, because we don't just have one state of survival. We have two states of survival. And even within those two states of survival, there are some nuances, right? And so for some people, survival can look a lot like anxiety, right? Constant fear, constant catastrophizing, hypervigilance, right? For others, it could look a little bit more like panic, anger, fear, like much more intense, similar to that fight or flight, but a little bit more fight, right? So that's kind of like one state of survival we could be in. We call it a sympathetic third. It is our fight or flight response. And now what that could look like is there's mental, physical, and emotional kind of signs of that. So mentally, it could look like a lot of fear, a lot of hypervigilance, a lot of anxiety, a lot of what ifs, kind of jumping to the past and to the future. There's also going to be physical symptoms that I think people don't often connect, which it could be a lot of gut issues, autoimmune issues, right? It's going to impact your body because the nervous system is our mind-body connection. So that's kind of one way you could know you're in survival, constant hypervigilance, negativity, constantly thinking about the future or the past, feeling like you can't be in the present, feeling like you're just jumping to the next thing and kind of waking up every week or every month being like, whoa, where did time go? I don't know how I got here. I don't really know why I'm doing this, but I have to keep going, right? I just need to keep going. Don't even question it. To me, that's that autopilot. But also, and you kind of mentioned this, living in survival could look a lot like feeling really shut down, feeling really disconnected from your emotions, not having any energy, a lot of procrastination, a lot of like what people quote unquote laziness. That's also a state of survival. And again, sometimes that's or ignored or labeled as something else. That's your nervous system also saying, I'm not feeling safe. Because at the end of the day, that's what being in a survival state is. It's your nervous system saying to you, hey, we're feeling threatened. We're feeling unsafe. And for some of us, that's going into that fight or flight, hypervigilance, anxiety, panic, what ifs, negativity, all of that. And for others, it's just shutting down on the nervous system saying, this is too much. I can't handle this. And shutting down, shutting down emotionally, shutting down physically, right? Not having energy, feeling exhausted, feeling really hopeless is also a sign that you might be living in survival or have been living in survival for way too long. A lot of people that follow me, you're here because you have an insecure attachment style. And so I want you to pay attention to the past couple of minutes that we've been talking about the nervous system, because these are things that are going to sound deeply familiar to you if you have an insecure attachment style. So throughout this entire podcast, we're going to drop a couple hints here and there on tools of resilience to help you begin to navigate that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it is, it is so connected to attachment because I think when you look at it, even if you think of the two states of survival I just mentioned, you can get a hint of where is the anxious attachment and where is the avoidant attachment and what's happening in each of their nervous systems and why they are responding physically, mentally, and emotionally the way that they are. And this leads right into my next question on self-awareness. People think self-awareness is reading all the books and going to therapy, diving into personal development, but your definition adds another element to that. Can you share that with us? Yeah, yes. You know, I think what a lot of people think is self-awareness is a lot of hypervigilance and anxiety, right? They're, they're concerned. They feel like something is wrong and they're digging and they're looking for problems and all they're seeing are more and more problems. And as they're seeing that, they're feeling more and more shame. They're feeling more and more broken, right? 
And if you think back to what I just said about survival, when you're in a state of survival, you often do have that intense hypervigilance because your brain thinks there's a tiger. So it's constantly looking for problems. It's looking for threats. It's looking for what's wrong and how can I do better? And why don't I have enough? Right. And so a lot, what a lot of people consider self-awareness is that they're in the state of survival. They're super hypervigilant. They feel broken. They're looking how to fix themselves frantically. And I understand that. And I appreciate that curiosity and that desire for growth. However, if all we have is self-awareness and we don't have self-compassion, that self-awareness is going to feel a lot like shaming yourself and putting yourself down and feeling more and more broken, the more and more information that you have. And so to me, for self-awareness to be effective, it needs to be coupled with a lot of self-compassion. And that self-compassion isn't just self-pity. It's more a deep understanding of why you are the way you are and what those responses are and how they've served you and how they've protected you. And to have compassion for those parts of yourself and the pain that is beneath those protective parts. So to me, it's yes, we need the self-awareness of like, oh, I see a problem there. But if we don't have that self-compassion, moving forward is going to be impossible because you're actually just going to feel like you're going in a downward spiral of shame. Absolutely. Now you touched on the tiger there for a second, and I know what that story is behind all of that, but can you share that uh, with the audience? Yeah. So that's a really good point. Maybe this requires me explaining a little bit about like what the nervous system is, because I think that's sometimes hard for people to understand. They kind of like think they understand it in theory. They, they do, they learned about it in school. Right. But in the context of healing, what is the nervous system? So the way I want you guys to think about the nervous system is to think that, think about it as your body's alarm system, your body's alarm system that is unconsciously scanning your surroundings. It's scanning your body. It is scanning your environments. It is scanning your relationships and looking for cues of safety and cues of danger. And depending on the cues that it's picking up, it is activating and mobilizing to keep you safe, right? If it's picking up on threats. So let's say you're, you're walking in, in the woods, in the rainforest, wherever, in the wild somewhere, and you're feeling really grounded, really present. You're looking around. It's beautiful. Everything is really wonderful. You're feeling so present in your body, all the things. And then suddenly you hear something in the bushes, right? And you understand you're in the wild. So now your nervous system is picking up on a threat, something in the bushes, some movement, right? And so your body is going to mobilize your whole nervous system, which is your mind body connection. It literally connects your brain stem to the major organ systems of your body is going to send the message. Oh, we picked up on a cue of danger and we need to mobilize. We think there's a tiger in the bushes and we need to get you to safety. And that first way we're going to try to keep you safe is through mobilizing through fight or flight. And so once it picks up on that cue of danger, your whole body is going to mobilize as if a tiger is coming to attack you right? How can you fight? How can you run? What is the best way to do that? So everything in your body changes. Suddenly your breath gets shallow and quick, right? Your heart rate speeds up. There's there's blood flow to your muscles, your immune system, metabolism, reproductive organs, all that starts to shut down because we don't need that right now. We need to give energy where it's most needed to fight or to run, right? So your whole body is mobilizing. That is what happens when you go into that fight or flight survival state. Your body's preparing to fight or run from a tiger and your body in, in some ways, your nervous system is still primitive. Meaning when you pick up on a threat, I don't know, an email at work or uh, 
something your partner says, your body's still mobilizing as if there is a tiger. And we need to run from that tiger or we need to fight, right? So that is what happens to your nervous system. It is mobilizing and preparing to run or fight that tiger. Now, if the threats keep piling up, if it gets overwhelming, if that tiger catches you, if you know that email from your boss is just on top of 50 other emails and you're like, I can't do this anymore. And now the threats are overwhelming. Your nervous system does the math and says, I don't think we could fight this. So the best course of action is for us to actually shut down. We're going to try to keep you safe by immobilizing. Similar to how animals play dead, right? We're doing the same thing. And the kind of the rationale behind that is your nervous system is thinking, hey, if that tiger caught you and you're about to die, we need to kind of minimize the pain. So we're going to remove you from your body, which is why often when people are in a really traumatic situation, what do they say? They say, I feel like I was watching it right? Because when you go into that state of immobilization, your nervous system is almost removing, disconnecting you from your emotions, disconnecting you from yourself to try to minimize the pain that's about, that's anticipating is about to happen. The other brilliant thing about that playing dead immobilizing is that your nervous system is thinking, well, maybe this tiger will drop us and maybe we'll have an opportunity to use all that energy that we just shoved down to get to safety. So we're just conserving energy, right? And again, the same thing happens with your partner, with a work email. If the threat gets overwhelming, you become immobilized and shut down. And that might not look really extreme. That might look like zoning out on your phone for 30 minutes and being like, where did time go? What, what was I doing? Right? Or just feeling numb. So that's our nervous system's way of saying, hey, we, I don't think we could fight the tiger. Let's immobilize. That's how we're going to keep you safe. When we're in a place of high anxiety, high activation, what is one tool that we could use that we can give to the audience today uh, that they can use when they're in that situation and they're feeling extremely activated because of that work email or the situation that they're in? Yeah. So the simplest way, I, I'm not going to give one specific tool. I'm going to give a little bit of rationale so they can customize that tool. So if we're thinking about that state of activation and mobilization, that sympathetic nervous system state, right? Your body is preparing to run or fight from a tiger and has too much energy. It's all this mobilizing energy and nothing to do with it. Because if you're not in the wild and it's your partner or an email, you're just trying to sit there, right? You're just trying to like shove it all down, but there's so much energy in your body. And so what we wanna do is allow our bodies to move some of that mobilizing energy. Trying to sit still is probably one of the worst things you can do because imagine there actually was a tiger. Do you think you'd be able to like meditate at that point? No way, your nervous system wouldn't let you. That would be, that would be silly, you would die, right? So the same thing is still happening. So when we have too much activation, what we actually want to do is help the body move some of that energy out, make the body think you are in fact running or fighting that tiger. And so this could look like a lot of different things, but ultimately it looks like physically moving energy out of your body. You can be getting up, jumping, shaking. Think about it. Animals shake all the time to release stress from their bodies. It could look like dancing, going for a walk, but physically and intentionally trying to move some of that excess energy out of your body. So if that's anxiety, it's moving that energy out. If you're feeling almost maybe a little bit more, maybe you're feeling rage and you're just feeling that kind of boiling up, right? That might be moving it a little more intensely. It might be screaming into a pillow. It might be making sound. It might be punching a pillow, but like getting that energy out of your body because your body thinks you're about to fight a tiger. And if you don't let that energy out, it might come out in ways that you don't love, like on your partner or an outburst at work or something else. The energy needs to move. 
going to get out one way or another. It's better if we can intentionally let it out physically than trying to keep it in, try to meditate or do those calming things instead. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think that's why a lot of people feel like they fail at meditation because they're trying to do it at a time where there's so much activation happening within the body and you can't get to that place of being able to settle down your physiology enough to get into that place of meditation. So then they just give up on it as a tool completely, which is unfortunate. Exactly, exactly. Which to me is why it's so important to understand these different states and then get really good at pinpointing exactly which state you're in so that you can use your tools appropriately and effectively. Because all these tools we learn from mindset tools to meditation, they're awesome when used appropriately. It's like using a tool in your toolbox. You know what I mean? You need to know the appropriate time to use that tool. Otherwise, you're going to think it doesn't work. Absolutely. And consistently, breath work is one of those tools. You can't just use it. You know, for some things you can. Andrew Huberman puts this out often and it's the physiological size. So if you're in a place, if you're in a place where you can't escape and you can't move and you have to sit at your desk and you're unable to go anywhere else, you can just take a quick inhale in through the nose. And then at the very top, you take a second inhale very quickly. So it looks like this and then immediately out through the mouth. The exhale is obviously longer than the inhale. And that allows you to move from your sympathetic into your parasympathetic. Do it three to five times while you're in a seated and safe position. And you'll start to notice you calm down after that. Yeah. I love Andrew Huberman. But yes, that's a great one. And it might take a few minutes of that, depending on where you're in, to be fair. Um, But it is a really powerful tool, especially that exhale, especially if you can incorporate making some noise, feeling that vibration of sound. It is very, very powerful, but it is about getting the energy out of your body and taking time to do that. And you're right. It's a practice. And I think a lot of people think, oh, I just jumped up and down for 15 seconds. I should be, it's not working. It's like, no, no, it might take five to 10 minutes, Right. but you need to help your body move that energy out. And you need to be practicing that, not just when you're in the thick of it, you need to be kind of incorporating these practices into your day-to-day life so that when you are in a tough moment, you've already had some repetition. And these are what I call the tools of resilience, because what you're doing is you're building up the tolerance to the external stress and stimulating your environment by doing it during the time periods where you're not feeling that stress so that when you are in the moment, it actually, you might feel the experience and it might come on strong, but because you have these tools of resilience and you know that you can lean on these things, it's going to take less time for you to get back to a place of homeostasis and feeling like yourself again. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is that is how we build resilience. So now I'm guilty of this, but there's so many of us that logically understand what it is that we're supposed to be doing by reading the books and and diving into personal development. But when it comes to the implementation, we tend to fall flat. Why do you think that is? And what can we do to not fall flat in the future? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've all been guilty of this. And I feel like especially in the world that we work in, in our industry, we've all been there, right? Because there is so much power in knowledge. And we know that we love knowledge. And yet knowledge and intellectualizing can be a way to avoid actually embodying, right? Because in some ways, it's easier for a lot of us to keep learning And that's kind of how we've learned to keep ourselves safe by being very logical, by being very analytical, by accumulating more knowledge. It's easier and safer to do that than to be present in the body and to actually make changes to our way of being. 
So I think that a lot of people think like, you know, there's a couple of reasons. One, a lot of us are just used to intellectualizing and use that as a way, as a coping strategy to avoid feeling, to avoid being present in our bodies. I also think there's a lot of us who almost just struggle to understand that doing the work is not just learning because that's how school is set up. You just keep learning and memorizing and that is you working hard, right? But in this work, learning and memorizing is maybe step one. The actual work, the doing of the work is then going into your day-to-day life and making small changes, implementing new behaviors, noticing things that you didn't notice, kind of trying to create new neural pathways. That is the actual work of embodying. But it is, that's so much harder, right? Because the second you, you know, when you're intellectualizing, you're like, I'm so quick, I'm so smart, I'm getting this. But then when you go into your life and you get triggered, and it's not logical. And you're like, wait, why did I get triggered even though I knew I shouldn't have? And now you start shaming yourself. And it's so much harder at that point to be like, wait, what do I do? How do I regulate? Than to just go back to learning. And so to me that the nervous system is really the missing link between intellectualizing and embodying. Because once we start to make that move and to start doing the work and to start showing up a little differently, reacting differently with our partners or making different career changes or whatever it may be, right? Our nervous system is going to get activated because our nervous system hates change. It hates change. It hates it when you try to grow. To to your nervous system, that's actually a major threat because to the nervous system, any change is a threat. And so so I I love this because it's actually the next question. (laughs) Why, Why is this shift so scary? Why is it so intimidating? Yes, that's it. You know, that's what I've been finding. And again, it's like, this is how I came onto this work of why was it so hard for me to make this change in my career when I had done really hard things before? Why was this so overwhelming? And I found my nervous system shutting down, which I used to never do, right? Yeah, I'd get anxious, but now I'm suddenly shutting down. Like, why is this so hard to do? And what I found is my nervous system saw the steps that I was taking as very threatening because your nervous system really does hate it when you try to change. Your nervous system loves familiarity. And I think this is sometimes hard for people to understand because they're like, no, 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 I, my, what's familiar to me is crappy. Like, I don't like how my relationships are. I don't like my job. I don't like this. I want to change it. It's like, I know you want to change it. Call that your higher self, your soul, your spirit, however you want to refer to it. There's a part of you that wants growth and wants to change those things that are familiar. But your nervous system, your nervous system would rather take something that's crappy and familiar than new and awesome because it knows it can survive the crappy and familiar. Now, I know you might not love how you're surviving it. I know it might be really hard. I know you might be struggling every single day. By just, just because you are still alive, your nervous system's like, hey, we can handle this. You know, it's the devil you know. And so your nervous system doesn't like change. It wants the familiar. And so when we start stepping out and doing the work, right? Like now you learned all this information. You're like, I have to show up differently with my partner. I'm going to handle my anxiety differently, change my career. And you start taking those steps. Your nervous system comes in trying to pull you back because it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're moving away from the familiar. And the familiar is where I know I could survive. What are you doing? And so all these coping mechanisms are going to come up that you don't like about yourself probably in an attempt to stop you, not an attempt to self-sabotage, because I hate that word, in an attempt to self-protect. And so that's why making that leap from 
intellectualizing to embodying is so hard because your nervous system is going to try to self-protect every step of the way. And if you don't know what to do with that, it's so easy to interpret that as I'm broken. This is impossible. My goal is too big, right? In all these ways that have something to do with like something being wrong with you or something being impossible for you. When in reality, it's your nervous system working exactly as it was designed. That's so tough. You're conditioned at a young age to be exactly who you are in this moment and you react your reactions to everything in your environment. So when you make that shift, when you make that change, it's so new that your body just it's visceral. It just sees it as this massive threat, even though logically you're like, oh, no, this is where we need to go. Your body's saying, no, please stop. This doesn't feel good. Yes, exactly. And it's a, it's that internal battle that I think people get really confused by and see as something's wrong. Is everyone experiencing this? And I think people don't realize that everyone does experience that. When you start stepping into growth, there's going to be a part of you that desperately wants to grow and knows it's the right thing and has all the tools. And there's going to be another part of you that is going to be fighting it and trying to stay exactly the same. And that's not a bad thing. So we keep hearing shame in the midst of all of this. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to at least touch on it a little bit more Mm -hmm. as to why we tend to lean towards shame when we're having these types of experiences. That's a really good question. I mean, I think a big part of it is shame is an attempt to change our behavior, right? Like when we're starting to make steps forward and something comes up, something isn't working, shame kind of comes in as an attempt to pull us back of like, are you sure you should be doing this? Right? I think another piece of it is a lot of times shame is associated with that second survival state that I mentioned, right? So the survival state of what we call a dorsal, which is where you try to stay safe through immobilization. And so shame is the emotion that often comes up when we're in that state. We start to feel really shut down. Right. And so often I think people are like, I need to just deal with the emotion that's coming up or the story that's coming up. Like there's a story of shame and I need to change that story of shame. But really the story often follows the state of our nervous system. And so if we're in that state of shutdown of immobilization, our nervous system is doing the math and it's like, this isn't going to work out. We can't handle this threat. Right. Our story is going to follow. And the story is often going to be one of hopelessness, of disempowerment, of I can't do this. And that's where those emotions of shame start to come up, right? So I guess that's to say that there are so many layers with with that shame. A part of it is your nervous system state. A part of it is your childhood wounds and the traumas and the experiences that have happened to you in the past and those wounds surfacing when you're triggered. Um, And a part of it is certain emotions we have are, they come up as a way of trying to kind of pull us back. Like guilt is a great example of that, right? Guilt often comes up when we're doing something that maybe we're not used to doing. And so guilt is trying to stop us from doing that thing. Like if you're a, if you're a people pleaser, right? You'll often, when you start setting boundaries, you feel a lot of guilt. Why? Guilt is an emotion that's trying to, no, don't do that. That might put us in danger because in the, when we were children, that was dangerous. Uh, people pleasing. So right? rough. Yeah. 
It's a tough one. <laughs> no, it is. And there's just so many people in my comment section that relate to the people pleasing portion of their, their attachment style. So to bring this back around, mm -hmm. a, com a common mindset amongst those who are diving into attachment styles is this belief that other people need to change first in order for my life to be better. Yeah. How do we get around that? That's a good question. Oh, you know, that's one of those beliefs that I feel like whenever you start this work, like you found, like I've been there. I've been there. I feel like when you first come upon this, you're like, I learned all the things. I yeah, learned if everything else changed around me, my life would be perfect. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And like, I think attachment sometimes I love attachment, but sometimes it could be used incorrectly because it could be like, oh, well, I so clearly see what's wrong with my partner and everyone I'm dating and my parents and their attachment. And if they changed their attachment, I would feel better. Yes. Right. And to some degree, I, I understand. I understand that fantasy or that desire, right? Like, wouldn't that be nice if everyone was more regulated? That would make our lives drastically better. And yet it always has to start with ourselves because that's the only portion of it we can control to focus on other people changing and them getting better is to disempower ourselves, right? It's to put us at their mercy of waiting for them to change and step up and to not take responsibility for what's really happening, which is your component of it. You know, I think like a key component of healing and doing the work maybe like one of the first steps once you've kind of done the intellectual and the learning is committing to taking a hundred percent responsibility for your life. And a hundred percent is not more than a hundred percent, right? Meaning that's not allowing people to take advantage of us. That's not not holding people accountable. That's not, not setting boundaries. It's I will take a hundred percent responsibility for what's mine. Even if the people around me are not taking responsibility for what's theirs. So I will always be asking, how am I contributing to this? And what can I do to stay empowered in this situation? Right. And so to me, again, you know, I do tie it back to the nervous system of that empowered state often comes from being in a more regulated state. Because when we're dysregulated, it is so easy and, and logically understandable that we would feel like it's everyone else. We see other people as the enemy, right? Think about it. When you're in a fight or flight state, literally everything in you mobilizes, not just physically, but mentally. And so mentally, your thoughts are very much, they are the enemy. It's, they're the tiger. How do I get away from them, right? It's like very me versus you. And so I find that a lot of times when people are in that state of disempowerment and kind of pointing fingers and blaming others, it's simply because they feel so dysregulated. And so if they could kind of come back to their bodies, if they could regulate a little bit more, if they could come back to a state of safety in that state, there's a little bit more of a connection to ourselves and others. And I find that in that state, it's a little bit easier to take responsibility for our peace and to say, okay, what can I do in this moment? I find that becomes so much easier. Otherwise it's like, 
I, I, I know how it feels to them. It's yeah, sure. I know I should take responsibility, but right now I feel like it's their fault. It's their fault. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so when we start talking about things like extreme ownership and radical acceptance, there's nothing but resistance and rejection to those concepts because, well, it has to be their fault because their cause I'm feeling this way. And it's because of their actions and the things that they did not fully realizing that. And this is my perspective is that they're actually reacting from the emotional age, from their core wound that's being brought up in that moment. And so, so they could have been that seven year old and they're experiencing this thing with boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, and it's just bringing up that core wound for them. But emotionally, they're, they're going to act out like they're that seven-year-old little boy or girl again. A hundred percent. And that is, that is so true. And that's what happens when we're triggered and dysregulated. Those old protective parts come up. The ways we kept ourselves safe when we were kids come up. And so a lot of times maybe it is pointing fingers or, you know what I mean? And so it makes complete sense. And I think you bring up a really good point of, the more you tell people like you're the problem, you need to take radical ownership. I think the more polarization that creates and the more resistance they have within them to even take that ownership. Cause they're like, wait, you're not seeing me. Right. Cause that younger part that you're referring to is like saying something is wrong. I feel unsafe. There's a problem here and no one is listening to that. And so it's part of why, you know, before, when I work with clients, before I ever ask them, or we even talk about changing a behavior, I focus a lot of time on helping them befriend these nervous system states, befriend these wounded parts, befriend these protective parts. And to me, that looks a lot like developing compassion and understanding. So coming back to that, our conversation about self-awareness, right? And why compassion and understanding have to be a huge component of that. It's like in those moments where you find yourself blaming others or telling others that they need to change, there's something in you that's coming up. And instead of trying to shut that down or be super harsh with yourself or take responsibility, it's how do we get curious about what within me feels so unsafe right now? What, what within me is being brought up? What is the pain that I'm feeling right now? Like just gently shifting that awareness, not to I'm the problem and I need to fix everything about myself, but there's, there's some pain coming up within me. And how can I hold some space for that? Spend less attention on energy and give less attention to them and more attention to the person who really needs it in this moment, which is me. One of the things this brings up for me is, and this will be the last question. What are the differences between self-regulation and co-regulation and why are these things so important for our relationships yeah that's a great question so self-regulation is anything you do on your own to bring your nervous system to a state of safety to help your nervous system regulate back up to that ventral state of safety right so that's self-regulation anything you do on your own this might be what we were saying of jumping and moving your body when you're feeling really sympathetic, it might be a meditation, a journaling practices, whatever tools you have that help you move up that nervous system ladder to a state of safety is tools for self-regulation. Tools for co-regulation are anything that you do with someone else that helps you come to that state of safety right? Anything that involves another person, another person's nervous system. And I think, you know, 
depending on who you talk to, sometimes there is either too much focus on self-regulation or too much focus on co-regulation. When in reality, we, we need both of them. Co-regulation is incredibly important. And I think a lot of times in the healing world, we almost like push a lot of self-regulation, but co-regulation is equally as important because connection is a biological imperative for us. We need other people. It, it helps our nervous systems feel safe. We attune to other people's nervous systems. And so co-regulation tools are really important and they could be really simple, but they mostly have to do with having another person who is safe. And it's almost like when we're co-regulating, you're borrowing their nervous system and helping yourself feel a little bit safer. And so this might be talking to someone who feels safe to you. It might be a hug. It might be breathing together. There's so many things that it could include, but mostly it just includes regulating and feeling safe with another person. And it's not just any hug. It's a 15 to 30 second hug. And that makes people very uncomfortable for some reason. <laughs> it does, right? It's, it's hugging until you could feel your body kind of relax. Yes. You know, because at first when you go into a hug, you're, you're still stiff. Your nervous system is still like, yeah, it's like butt out, you know, oh, and it's yeah. like, no, you want to, you want to wrap yourselves up. You're in that embrace. It's 15 to 30 seconds. When you feel your shoulders drop, then you've hit that place mm. of feeling pretty good in that moment and feeling connected. Yeah. And it, it, you're absolutely right. And I think the key component there is making sure you're doing that with a safe person. Yes, absolutely. No, I was just going to say, you know, it's, you were saying like, sometimes that could feel really uncomfortable. And for a lot of us, co-regulation could feel really unsafe. Right? Yes, I can totally see that. Masha, thank you for being here today. I'm so happy you were able to bring all this to my audience. What is a great way for them to be able to reach out to you? I know you do coaching as well. So I would love for everyone to get the opportunity to experience that. Yeah, it was so wonderful being here. And yeah, if anyone's curious, you guys could find me on Instagram, probably the best way to find me on Instagram. I am Masha K, M-A-S-H-A-K-A-Y. You could totally check me out there, check out my work. I'm also on TikTok at Coach Masha K, same spelling. And if you're ever interested in working with me or just curious about the nervous system, curious about diving a little deeper into what we spoke about understanding, are you living in survival? How is that impacting your goals right now? You could book a nervous system audit with me. So it's a 50 minute session where we dive into what's happening in your nervous system. How is it impacting your goals? How is it impacting your life? And what are the opportunities for growth there? And so if you're interested in that, um, we will have a link. And if you use the code Jason, you can get $75 off. And so check that out if you're curious about the nervous system. That's awesome. Thanks for doing that. Of course. All right. Well, thank you very much.